This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Claire Bowen is the woman behind Honeysuckle and Hilda, a florist who likes to write, and her two little dogs. Based in Oxfordshire, England, in a tiny village nestled into the Chilterns, Claire has a love of country walks, foraging in hedgerows, and dreaming and creating in her flower studio, which looks out over her in-process garden. Claire, an environmental advocate before turning to flowers as her life path, is also the author and co-creator of a new book entitled The Healing Power of Flowers, a look around the year in 80 flowers, photographed by Eva Nemeth. Claire joins us today as we in the Northern Hemisphere approach the fullness of summer bloom and the summer solstice to share more about her garden and floral life journey. Welcome, Claire. What a pleasure to speak with you. Jennifer, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be talking to you. And as I said to you, I know off the record already, I'm so flattered to be asked. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I would love to have you describe for listeners your own current personal mission for your flower and gardening practice. What would that be, Claire? So my my real mission, um, one one that I think that I set off with, I'm relatively new to the world of flowers. It was something I've always wanted to be involved in. But I think I knew from the outset that I think what I I would describe it as going gently. Before I began this, I had done quite a lot of environmental campaigning. And that was something that was very important to me. And I came to Flowers maybe five years ago, six years ago, when it wasn't quite as mainstream an idea as, as it is now. And also, I think to do it with kindness. I think it's really important to encourage and support each other in our ventures and so I think going gently as, a, as an ethos is probably where I am. The very stating of that, to, to go gently and to do our work kindly, seems like a message and a mission that all of us could absorb a little more in, in myriad ways every single day, Claire. And um, to have you say that out loud also, having followed some of your environmental posts and some of your musings, um, it, it really fits the ethos that I I hold of you in in my own mind. So, you know, before we get to your your floral design work and and to the book and and why why the book right now, I'd love to have you take us back a little bit. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom you know, the mission statement, go gently and be kind, would be what you hold dearest? So I think um, having read your wonderful book and um, and listening to some of your other podcasts, I think I've come to things slightly from almost the opposite direction. Hmm. I grew up a little bit in Scotland, but largely in London. I was in London for 43 years. And I originally uh, studied art history as a postgraduate and I lectured for a little while but uh, mainly I worked in an office and in sort of a corporate environment which was good it, it, it sustained me it paid my bills but it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing but I think as a single woman in London it was hard to envisage how I could how I could get to the point of where, where I wanted to be I, I didn't I wasn't even sure that I, I even could and I had quite an unusual set of circumstances that came about. My mother uh, worked in the city of London um, and she was very career driven. And I think for her, it was quite a surprise that I didn't want to follow a traditional, what she saw as a traditional kind of career um, based around uh, financial success, which wasn't something that interested me in quite the same way. So I can pinpoint the exact moment that I knew what it was I wanted from life. I didn't know how I would get there. And I used to read magazines and dream of living in the countryside. And one day I saw a picture. It, was, it wasn't a particularly remarkable picture. It was a lady with a dog and a wheelbarrow full of flowers in her garden. And I looked at it and I thought, 
that's what I want from my life. I've no idea how I do it, but that's what I want. And to other people, it wouldn't have been remarkable at all. There were people who've grown up in the countryside with a dog and with flowers and, and that for them is a way of life. But to me, it was an ambition in itself to reach that, that very simple point. And still, I didn't know quite how I was going to get there. But I thought about it. I kept, I still have this picture. I've kept it for, <laughs> I think, gosh, how old am I? I think I must have had it for almost 20 years, which is quite scary. I've still got the picture. And I look at it. If I think I'm having a bad day, I look at that picture and remind myself, this is what you wanted. So, you know, right, come on, right. you know, nothing, nothing's that bad. But I don't know how how much you know or how much people want to know but I will say that I was um very unwell I discovered um actually on my 40th birthday I found out I was very unwell and I wasn't able to work for a period of three or four years and initially there was a there was the period where I didn't even know if I would survive the illness I don't want to be too serious but also it yeah. did make me, me reflect on my life and think well I haven't done the things I wanted to do, but what I wanted to do and what I've been doing are two completely disparate things. And, and that really, I was really quite annoyed with myself about that. So when I found out that, you know, recovery was going to be possible, um, I really started to think about that. And I had three or four years to start thinking about that. And one of the first things I did afterwards was to get a dog who was Hilda. <laughs> and we were still in London. Um, but she was my reason to get out of bed every day. And we would go out walking in Hackney Marshes in East London. And I started to really, really notice my surroundings in a way that I never had when I was running for the bus to work every morning and coming home in the dark. I uh, really started yeah. to notice things. And I knew that I wanted to write. I'd been on a couple of short writing classes in London, sort of in the evening. And I'd been doing sunflower classes in the evening, I'd moved from West London to East London so I could be near Columbia Road Flower Market because, but it was a hobby. It was, you know, it wasn't something that I could see myself ever being able to do full time or, or for it to be a lifestyle at all. And so getting Hilda and going out and noticing all of these things, um, it, it, it just opened my eyes in a way that they hadn't been opened before. Right, right. And that, that, uh, I, I don't just the the story of the picture speaking to you, and yeah. then Hilda coming into your life. And will you describe Hilda for listeners who might not have have seen her sweet face? And, so Hilda, um, yeah, and and I, it seems so clear that the universe was saying, "Okay, this way, this way, this Claire, way. this way." Yeah, I think I think that's very true. Hilda is a very small brown schnauzer. Um, I spend a lot of time saying, really, she is a schnauzer because she's so small and she's brown, which is unusual. She has a very, very happy walk and a very happy disposition. And she <laughs> loves she loves people. She is so offended if she runs up to somebody and they don't want to talk to her. She doesn't understand <laughs> it. She doesn't get it at all. She can't imagine why they're not her friend. She's very, very cheerful. She does now have a, a counterpart but at, at the time that we're talking about just now it was just her right and she and she and I made a great team I'm pretty sure that my husband who was at the time my boyfriend I'm pretty sure that he married me for joint custody we still, <laughs> we, still we still talk about this but I'm pretty sure that that you know she was a big she was a big incentive to uh, tie the knot I think so she's she's wonderful and the reason that I began campaigning and beginning to look into the um, sustainable side of things was at the time Hackney Council had been spraying herbicides all over an open space called London Fields and quite a few of the dogs had died as a result oh. because they had absorbed the glyphosates through their paws. Right. And I had been walking, I had been doing walks with a lady called Catherine. He was very, very kind and we talked a lot and she had said to me, what do you do? And I said, I'm not doing anything. I'm on sick leave. And I said, what do you do? And she said, oh, I used to dabble in fashion. And I didn't think any more about it until these huge posters, uh, you know, about herbicides started coming up in a typeface that was very recognizable as Catherine Hamlet's. And she was a great designer in the 80s. 
and a, a great campaigner. And she does all the sort of T-shirts with the big black letters on. And somebody said to me, of course, Catherine Hamlet is a great friend of yours. And I said, no, no I've never met Catherine Hamlet. <laughs> and, they, and they said, but you walk your dog with her every day. I said, no, that's, no, that's Catherine. And she had been so modest about what she did and, and her beliefs. And we had talked so much about the environmental aspects and about organic cotton and all the things that were important to her and some of the charities that she worked with that I'd never asked her surname and I'd never really even stopped to think about the fashion side of it at all. So this was sort of a revelation. <laughs> and she started up a campaign on 38 Degrees, which is a campaigning website, uh, which I ran for her and it, it garnered quite a lot of support. And we went to um, the Houses of Parliament and we talked to um, some politicians. We talked to a man called Zach Goldsmith, who was the, in charge of the environmental side for the Conservative Party at the time. And Caroline Lucas, who was the head of the Green Party and the Pesticide Action Network came with us. And we sort of had a talk to see you know, what it was that we could do, but we were very much at the stage where people were saying to us, it's not enough to come with a problem, you have to come with a solution. And I mm. think now, many years later, we are um, at a stage where, where we can get to that point, but this was very much a sort of early discussion. And um, there, were part, there were sort of cross-party talks at the time about glyphosates and neonicotinoids and, and all of the damage that those things cause and the health issues. And so this to me was very interesting because as, as well as having had to have um, lung surgery, which had been put down to air pollution, I also had an autoimmune disease, which they told me was caused by unknown environmental aspects. Oh, and they, yeah. They, unknown. They told, yeah, unknown. Yeah. And they told me, stay away from chemicals. You know, look at what is in your cleaning cupboard. Look at what you put on your face. Look at what you eat, because there's something in there that's made you really quite poorly. So the autoimmune came first and then the lung disease or the lung cancer came afterwards. And for me to know that my health had been damaged so much by environmental things that I just up to that point hadn't known were an issue, I took it really quite personally, if I'm honest. And so it was a bit of a mission to me in whatever I did next to make sure that I, that I upheld better practices, not just for myself, but in everything that I did. Yeah. And so, okay, how do you propel yourself out of London? Sure. So the way that I got to the countryside was while this was going on, I had been seeing um, somebody for a couple of years. And I think it was some, you, there are some people in life who are very good up until the point where things go wrong. And my now husband was the opposite and that he was, wasn't, you know, he was a bit flaky up to the point things went wrong, at which point he was absolutely amazing. And his name is? His name is Charles. And I, I always, I always tell the story of um, when I was in hospital and I was in hospital for quite a long time because it was fairly drastic surgery. And as a result of surgery, I couldn't use my arms at all. And he, he was working about 14 mm. hours a day in his job in London but he used to sneak in um before visiting hours and he would butter my toast for me in the morning mm. and then he would go to work and so when people ask why 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 did I marry him I always say because he buttered my toast and <laughs> literally and not figuratively me, I think, right <laughs> I think literally yeah literally yeah I should be careful um and I think I think that's the title of a great book he buttered my toast mm. I think there's something in that anyway we got we got married not you know, a little bit after that, once I was, you know, well enough to do that. And the advice that I was getting from medical professionals was you, you need to get out of London. You really do. And I was, yeah, I was, I was fairly committed to the countryside. My husband was, he's a very social animal, was a bit terrified, but recognized that we needed to do it. So we, we moved out and we rented to start with in a village not far from where we live now. And we set about looking for the house that would work for both of us, which took a really long time because we couldn't agree on anything. And eventually someone told us about a house in a village that we'd never been to that was very nearby. And they said it has an outbuilding that could be a flower studio. Mm. And it has a garden of about a third of an acre, which would be just about right. 
and we went to see it and we both fell in love with it it belonged to a couple called Mr and Mrs Honey and the garden had the garden had lots of roses and when we moved into the house most people leave an inventory of like how the dishwasher works or the fridge or the boiler and the only piece of paper that we had was a list of the names of all the roses in the garden. <laughs> so, so that was how, that was another sign that we definitely moved into the right house. In between a lot of things had happened. I couldn't imagine myself teaching. I, because I had been off work for so long, unsurprisingly, perhaps after four years, I was made redundant. And I was given um, a payoff that was more generous than I was actually entitled to. And old me would have put that in the bank for a rainy day, but new me was like, no, I'm going to just grasp this nettle. I'm going to do it. And it afforded me the opportunity to go and study and do retreats with some really amazing people. Mm. A lady called Miss Pickering, who's based in Stanford, who was the person who inspired me to get into flowers. Cause I also read about her in the same magazine that I'd seen the picture of the dog and the wheelbarrow. I went and I did some classes with her, but then I, I got to go yeah. on retreats. I went with to one with Ponderosa and Time, who Katie is just, she's so kind and so generous and so encouraging. Ah, yeah. And she made me think maybe, maybe I could do it. And I went on to more. I went to Belgium to see Emily of Floropean and um, Heart Floral as well. They worked together on one. And also I went up to Cambo Gardens with um, Kristen and Sarah and Rachel from Hedgerow and the three of them, that was a really heady yeah. combination as well. So wow. the fact that in a way to, to, to be so unwell, having led a, in my view, very healthy lifestyle was very unlucky, but what came out of it um, caused a much, a, a life change that I don't, I honestly don't know if I would ever have made or if I would still be sitting at my desk now, I don't know, but I had to change. And this payment that I was given, I was able to invest and to go and learn from, from people that I really, really admired and whose style I really, really liked. And in that, I was enormously fortunate because I know I, know I, could, I could sense that people would sometimes write and say, I wish I had been afforded these opportunities. And I absolutely understood where they were coming from. Sometimes I wanted to write back and say, you wouldn't want all the opportunities, trust me, because of the place that they came from. But I could understand also. So I had to slightly temper what I was writing because I didn't want it to seem like I was showing off or or, or, or that I, I had a background that had made me feel that I could do this. It was literally just the illness that brought about, that brought about this change of events. So from there, I thought I started to post on Instagram, as you do, and people started to follow me. And then people started to write and say, do you do weddings? Do you teach? And I thought, don't, don't be silly. Of course I don't. Why would, why, was, why would you ask me that question? And the questions became more and more. And my husband, Charles, said, perhaps this is something you should think about properly. Right. Right. So up until this point, Claire, uh, you know, you'd been studying, you'd been meeting with, you know, some of these really um, big and talented personalities I- in our floral world right now. And you you were living in your new home um, with your list of roses from the honeys, which I love. And um, were you already cultivating that garden in order to grow flowers for? for no. Okay. Yeah. No, it happened not quite in that sequence because I was doing the studying before I found the house. Oh, okay. We've only been in the house for two years and the first year was building work and then the second year was lockdown. So the garden itself is, it's like the beginning of a project. And the thing I loved about your questions when it said, how does what you've done with the book influence what you're thinking about in the garden and your floral practice? And I was like, that's amazing. How does it? So I spent this afternoon thinking, well, how could the two things come together? But the the garden is, obviously we have the roses that were there, but there's quite a lot, partly because of the building work that happened. It unfortunately just damaged some of the garden, but the, but the, the garden is kind of like the next, the next big thing. Oh, that's exciting. So you have these wonderful influences in Mrs. Pickering and the the women that you studied under. 
take us from there and how you start to do actual floral design um, and make that your career path, Claire? So my very first class I did, actually while we were still in London, we hadn't moved, and I did it in our kitchen. And I had a, a very small, like a group of like four or five ladies and I literally just like covered the cost of my flowers and my vintage vases. And they came for an afternoon and we took pictures and it seemed to go quite well. And everybody wrote and said that they really loved it. And then shortly afterwards, when we were in the countryside, I rented a village hall in a very quintessentially English village where they film lots of Agatha Christie films and <laughs> and all of those kind of things. And I did a few classes there. And again, it worked out. I had by that stage met my great friend, Ava Nemeth, and she came along and she took some photographs and it seemed to go quite well. And then the next thing that happened to me was over here, we have a, um, a, it's now more, it used to just be one farm shop in the Cotswolds, but they're now in London as well called Dalesford. And they got in touch with me and we said, would you like to come and do some guest floristry for us? which for me, it was a, a company that I really loved. And I'd done a few collaborations and a few branding things, but this for me was like, again, a bit of a dream because I, I, I loved, it was somewhere that I absolutely loved. So I said, yes. And so as well as teaching first in, in hired venues and now at home, I would go and teach for them as well. So that was, a, that was another big step. So I, I did some weddings as well, but I think I realized fairly early on that people were approaching me much more to learn from me than for me to do. I, I, I do do weddings, but I'm probably going to do them less, I think, after lockdown because I love teaching so much and I love writing. And I think that's where, that's where my focus lies now. And what do you think it is in that teaching? Um, because clearly teaching and writing were things that you did in your previous incarnation. Yeah. And to put that together with your love of flowers, what do you think that exchange, um, how does that nourish you, Claire? I love, I'm not very good in the huge groups of people, but in small groups, I absolutely love meeting people. And one of the things I found is that the people who come to me, they generally have quite a specific reason for doing it. It's hopefully to do with my floral style. Um, but also quite often they have something else they want to talk to me about or they will write to me and say, I feel a real connection with something that you've written or something that you've done or perhaps they've had a similar experience to mine. I've been reasonably open about my health, not because I feel sorry for myself, I don't at all, but the message that I want to give out, that it is possible to have a horrible time and not see a way out of it but to come through it and for something wonderful to come from that. So quite often the people who come to me, they have, they have a reason for coming. One of the ladies who came to see me uh, last year was a member of the Green Party, who's a political party, that the main environmental party. And so I was really thrilled that she came to see me because she wanted mm -hmm. to teach people in her school how to, they all got together and they made wreaths every year and they used to make them with Oasis and she didn't want them to do that. So she came to me to learn how to do something sustainably so that she could go away and teach that. So I, I, I think with almost everybody who's come to me, there's a backstory to it. And I absolutely love that. It's not just about making money, though, of course, that's useful. I'm really aware that people are giving up their time to, to spend with me. And sometimes that time is very precious. They may have children and a busy job and all sorts of things. So when they do come, I want to make sure that they have been really nurtured as much as the flowers have. This is Cultivating Place. Claire Bowen is a floral designer and author working under the name of Honeysuckle and Hilda. It was in her 40s and after a life-threatening autoimmune disease and round with lung cancer that she turned her attention to the joy and beauty and healing of flowers. We'll be right back with more of her story after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. What does it take to make us change? 
That is the question ringing in my ears as I listen to this garden life story with Claire. What does it take to make us change for our own health and well-being, for the health and well-being of all humans, of all creatures, or life on the planet, period? There is, of course, not just one answer to this question, in the garden or out of it, but I can tell you, I find the 1,000 answers to this question in these Cultivating Place conversations endlessly fascinating and redeeming. Thank you to every one of you that financially supports these conversations through your monthly recurring contributions or your one-time gifts throughout the year. It absolutely makes this daily and weekly work possible and sustainable in my heart, in my head, and in my days. This kind of garden life thinking and growing, how we change, how we grow, and how we do this together are questions well worth growing the answers to. I know you agree, and I am so grateful to be here together. We're back now to our conversation with Claire Bowen, a florist and writer based in Oxfordshire, England. Her business is known as Honeysuckle and Hilda. And as we come back, she shares more about her first book project, The Healing Power of Flowers, an expansive and updated riff on the Victorian language of flowers with both seasonality and sustainability at the forefront. So take us to the book. When what what was the genesis of this project? And it's so fabulous that you teamed up with your friend Eva for it. It is really stunning photography. Isn't she amazing? I am so happy that she said yes. As with my story so far, it was it happened the other way around, the way I thought things would happen. <laughs> I hadn't expected that. It's probably what they'll put on my tombstone. <laughs> I love writing. I'd had a very specific book in mind that I wanted to write, which is not unlike the story that we've been talking about so far, but slightly more anecdotal and illustrated with flowers and my tales of the countryside and things like that. But then in January last year, I had an email, literally just, it was like an inquiry form on my website. And it was from Penguin Random House. And it said, hello, I'm an editor at Penguin Random House. Would you like to write a book? And, <laughs> and that's literally how it happened. And I thought, well, that's very strange. I wonder if it's really from Penguin Random House or is this a friend playing a trick on me? And so I had a look and no, it seemed genuine. And so I wrote back and said, hello, yes, I'd be very interested in writing a book. Please tell me more about it. And it turned out that they had a very specific project in mind. And from the beginning, they sort of had the healing power of flowers was something that was originally driven by them. And as it turns out, worked incredibly well for both of us. Yeah. The editor who wrote to me had been reading my blog and she had come across a post that I'd done before Christmas about um, cutting down on your footprint over Christmas and supporting independence and sustainable gifts and recycling and all of those things. And she thought, I wondered if there was something in this. So I was trying to work out how the two things went together. And she, I think originally she's, oh, she, my editor, she's absolutely lovely. And I think um, in her mind, she was thinking along the lines of floriography and the language of flowers. But I felt that that had already been done very well by other people. And so to take the subject on again, just as it was, wasn't going to be quite enough. So I had to think about how I was going to reinterpret that and what I was going to bring to it that would make it a little bit different so that I wasn't just repeating other people's work. And so the first thing that I stipulated and, and said was, was, it said on the request, you have to be comfortable with your own photography. And so I said, well, actually, I'm not comfortable with my own photography. I have to work with Ava Nemeth um, or I can't, I can't possibly do it without my friend Ava, the remit was for 80 flowers um, with meanings or energies or some kind of holistic property, um, and they had to be photographed. And so it, it, from my point of view, um, 
Ava, although she's the photographer, she's also the co-creator because there was so much photography and there were so, mm-hmm. so many problems to solve during a lockdown. I was um, designated as what they call over here clinically extremely vulnerable. So I wasn't allowed out of the garden until August and we started in March. So we had to think of, yeah. we had to think of ways of how are we going to get the flowers and I did, I did sneak out a couple of times, but, but local florists were very kind about delivering to us. Or I lived next to, very close to a, a farm, flower farm called Green and Gorgeous. And Rachel and Ash were very kind about delivering. And then we went up to the land gardeners who were about an hour away. And they, let, mm-hmm. they just disappeared and let me pick. And then I took a photograph of what I'd picked. Aww. And then, you know, so they knew what I'd taken. And people were very kind, but it was a real... A real challenge, actually, and the other challenge that we had was that we began in March, and because of the printing process and doing it in a sustainable manner and not flying books, they had to ship books back. That takes many months, and they always knew that the 4th of March was the date they wanted to launch it. We had to submit the writing by the end of July and the photography by the end of August. So, of course, there were flowers that weren't in season, and because... I have sections on seasonality and sourcing flowers responsibly. I thought I didn't feel in all conscious that I could buy flowers that were out of season, even just one for the book. So in the end, we ended up photographing flowers that I'd already dried and things like that and really thinking on yeah. our feet. Yeah. So that's why there are so many dried flowers in the book is because they were quite often out of season or they weren't available, but I had dried some previously in my studio. I think this is where working with someone that you really trust and really get on with is so valuable. And one of the things, the two things that came away from it were one, be flexible, both in terms of the remit of the book, because at first I thought, oh gosh, but I had something else in mind. But then when I thought about it and thought about how I could make it my own, it was something that I really loved and that I'm really glad that I've done. And the also the other lesson that I learned was if you can collaborate with someone that you really trust, it makes the the load so much lighter because you have good days and bad days and times when things don't work out and having that other person who's with you all the way to listen and to you know problem solve has been such a joy actually there's also something in there about that model of um, the thinking creatively and resourcefully in order to maintain your own integrity around sustainability. That is a fantastic lesson for anyone listening to this because our global capitalistic floral world um, can be as damaging to the environment as any other industry. And so to hear you held that boundary and do it beautifully and demonstrate that you can, you know, use flowers, arrange with flowers, press and dry flowers so that you can work with them all year round and hold seasonality. That is a powerful lesson, Claire. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it wasn't always easy, would be an understatement, no. but I was, I was determined that I was going to do it that way. And it's something, again, I should say the publishers were hugely supportive of. And some, and and at the beginning, I had to explain um, when they sometimes they would want us to reshoot something, and it's like well, we can't reshoot it because it was only in season for six weeks, right? <laughs> and you're and you're bringing this up ten weeks later; it's been and gone. So that that was something that was they were they were very good about that. I have to say, they were hugely supportive. So so move us into how you transcend what we think of as traditional language of flowers and the the work that you did to kind of ask and invite each reader to kind of create their own language of of flowers. And so the book, just for readers to bring you up to speed, listeners, is organized into these very specific categories of flowers and the um, emotions they invite. And they are for joy, for calm, for love, for success, to console, to celebrate, foliage, bouquets to share, how to press flowers, how to dry flowers, how to source flowers responsibly. And then there are a couple of indices as well. Um, so, so walk us through how you, how you do this update on this idea of floriography and, and give us maybe an example of what you mean by flowers for joy, Claire. The language of flowers is, is a very important thing and, and it, is, it is quite a big part of the book. 
But I, the way that I was looking at flowers wasn't just in terms of their traditional meanings, their Victorian meanings. I looked sometimes at the etymology of the flower, but also the therapeutic qualities that the flowers sometimes have. I looked at aromatherapy. I looked at medicinal uses for the flowers. But I think one of the things that interested me most was the energy that you get from a flower, maybe in, in, the, in the garden, for instance. So some, some flowers in Victorian language have negative associations. So hellebores are associated with lies. But I took the hellebore and I thought about what it meant to me. And it's a great flower. It's there in winter when you need flowers the most. They last for a long time, even as a cut flower. And so I took the meaning of lies and put that to one side and instead thought about it in terms of longevity and constancy and perhaps in, the, in terms of a friendship or a relationship. And equally with foxgloves, um, they're associated with falsehood traditionally. But if you see them in the garden, they're sort of standing tall and proud and all the bees are buzzing around. And so I took them to mean productivity and the success that can come from that productivity. So in terms of um, specifically flower for, flowers for joy, one of the ones that um, came up early on were ranunculus. And I think it's, I think it's the way that they look and also... They're named after the Latin word for a frog, which is uh, rana. And I think of little sort of frogs jumping around and being happy. And I read somewhere that they look as if they're ballerinas wearing little tutus. And I thought they do. They look so frilly. And you think of the ballet and you feel happy. And so ranunculus fell quite easily into the category of joy. And we had cosmos. And we also, spirea is another one. I just love... I love that it's spring and the flowers are starting to come out and they're so sort of frothy and they put on such a lovely display. And after a long winter, when you sort of, your eyes settle on them, it's, it's really hard not to feel happy. So I think those would be a couple of examples for joy. There was Ami as well, which, and Delphiniums. And there were so, so many that I think all flowers are joyful actually. So it was quite difficult to distinguish what went into joy versus what went into love and things like that. Because a lot of the flowers, when we, we did it, we did it with spreadsheets and we would write the flower in which category it was going to go into. But sometimes I couldn't decide. So I would put them in two categories and then we would go back and review it and decide which one. I, for one, am often irritated by the Victorian language of flowers because it limits what I take to to love about many, many flowers. Um, and the uh, helibors standing for uh, a lie is just one example where you read it and you think, that is not my experience <laughs> or vibe <laughs> off of these flowers at all. We all have um, our own cultural and you know, traditional and personal histories with flowers wherever we might live. So your experience in England is very different than mine having grown up at 8,000 feet in Colorado, um, where a, a helibore is, you know, miraculous, nothing short of miraculous. And so I love this this idea that we move beyond the language of flowers, which is is a lovely concept, but there isn't only one language of flowers any more than there's one language of anything, right? And I was gonna say I'm so relieved you said that because I wasn't sure when I when I was doing it. I was like, <laughs> are people gonna think that I'm mad for doing this? I really wanted to to sort of break away from that a little bit because Sometimes I can't imagine sending flowers to somebody that I don't like. And if I think they're a liar, the last thing I'm going to do is send them to some foxgloves. <laughs> <laughs> because I like foxgloves and I'll keep, them, I'll keep them to myself. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really happy that you said that. Thank you. Claire Bowen is a floral designer and author working under the name of Honey, Suckle and Hilda. We'll be right back for more of her journey story after a break. Stay with us. So, thinking out loud this week, 
I have a healthy handful of events coming up this year in person, and I am so excited about this. I got even more excited recently after seeing fabulous photos online of the opening gala and judging for this year's Philadelphia Flower Show, where our friend Wamboy Ippolito took best in show for landscape. Taking place outside and in the warm season for the first time in its long history, the Philadelphia Flower Show runs all this week, June 5th through the 13th, in Philadelphia's FDR Park. See, old garden dogs can change, can adapt, and can learn new and exciting ways. For all of my upcoming events where I would love to say hello and commune with you about garden life in general, head over to cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. From San Francisco to Nantucket, Bar Harbor to Los Angeles, Aspen to Atlanta, I really look forward to connecting and celebrating what it means to be gardeners at this time. We're back now to our conversation with Claire Bowen, a florist and writer based in Oxfordshire, England. Her business is known as Honeysuckle and Hilda. And as we come back, she shares more about her personal journey with flowers for joy, for love, and in this time in our world, flowers for consolation. There were quite a few, quite a few flowers that also fitted into consolation. And one of the first ones... Um, that I chose were, was actually snowdrops. And I know that snowdrops, particularly at the moment, they're being posted everywhere as a sign of hope. Um, and that obviously that's one of their traditional meanings. And it was one that we really, really thought about. But a small bunch of snowdrops, um, traditionally um, a, a brooch was made in the, in the shape of a snowdrop and it was given to somebody who'd suffered a loss. And snowdrops are often often were sent on cards for the new year, sending blessings for the months that lie ahead. So in a way, the two aren't actually, um, they're kind of linked in a way because the the hope that comes after the grief. But I I like this idea, this tradition that I drew upon of them being used as a brooch. And so, so I decided to put them in consolation, but also then the fact that they offer hope as well. And again, with the mar- the marigolds was a similar one. So with the marigold, the marigold traditionally symbolizes grief and sadness, but it closes at night, but it sort of reopens in the morning. And, and the idea is that when it reopens in the morning to a better day, it's indicating that happiness will return. And in Mexico, they play a very central part in the Day of the Dead celebrations. So they are traditionally associated with grief, even though they're these sort of bright, cheerful flowers. And I think that was one of the surprises for me, was because I wouldn't necessarily associate them with grief. So, I, yeah, I think I think those were probably two, two examples of consolation. We also talked about lupins and aquilegia and zinnias. Um, and there are quite a few that are really cheerful flowers that you wouldn't, when you looked at them, associated with grief. But it's nice to know that if you are looking for flowers that are for consolation, you don't just have to send lilies, I suppose, because everyone associates lilies with funerals and, and things like that. So it's quite nice to have a variety of flowers. And also, if you were putting something together for somebody who was experiencing grief, as well as using the traditional flowers for grief, you could mix some in for hope and for joy so that they could look forward to the happy times or you could mix in some representing friendship and love to let the person who's grieving know that you're there for them. So I think it's really nice that we can be more versatile in in that expression of grief and consolation than just you know the one traditional flower that everybody thinks of. You spoke of surprises along the way. Would there be any other surprises in the process for you, especially having come through your own life process? Were there any other surprises for you in what this process taught you that you maybe weren't aware of before? I think definitely, definitely. I know I've already talked about it, the flexibility and being open to other ideas. And I think the fact that the process was in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) it wasn't just my first book, it happened in the middle of a pandemic. And I think it was an eye opener in that sense. I think 
I hadn't realized how many stages a book goes through before publication. And I think when I handed the book in at the end of July, it was the day before my birthday. And I was like, hooray, celebrate. The book is done. And it's like, oh, no, it's not. Not by a long, <laughs> not by a long way. And I really, I really enjoyed the whole process. But I think then it was only just beginning because then, although I'd been sending examples to my editor so that she could give me feedback on like the first 10, and then I wrote another 10. And then she was like, okay, yeah, you've, you've, got, the, you've got the tone that we're looking for now. And so then I wrote the next 60 and then I submitted them all. But then she went through and she had her own thoughts. And just as I am quite wordy when I talk, I'm also quite wordy when I write. So there was quite a lot of editing, a lot of chopping out and editing to do. And then it came back to me for my thoughts. And then it went to a copy editor and then the copy editor got involved. But the copy editor didn't always have exactly the same ideas as the editor. So then it was the three of us. It was like a three-way process. And it was so interesting to be part of that. And I, I learned so much from that process. So I think understanding absolutely what goes into a book. I thought I did before, and I've always admired people who write, and I always wonder at books when they come together. But now having done one myself, I think I have an even bigger appreciation of what it is that goes into making a book. And it is making a book because you don't just write it. There are so many people involved. Right, right. It is definitely a big team effort. And it uh, it struck me in the middle, uh, it has always struck me in the middle of working on books that um, it is not unlike a garden and creating yeah. a garden and mm -hmm. the, the many steps in the process and the many um, organisms that uh, have input yeah. into the final dynamic result. So as we come to an end uh, in our time, Claire, I wonder when you think forward, what are what are your long term goals with this work personally and and maybe globally as well? So um, in terms of this book, the thing that I really love about it is that it's written, it's not written only for florists. I love books that are written for florists. I, you know, I lap them up. I absolutely love them. But when, I, for instance, I was asked to write a section on how to do very simple bouquets, and I struggled a bit to start with because I thought, well, if I did a bouquet, I would want 25 ingredients and I would want it to be throwing really beautiful shapes. And suddenly I was told, you have to do it with only four or five ingredients. And because of the lockdown, it was often ingredients that were already in the garden. And to simplify things down was something I found quite difficult. But then I really learned to appreciate flowers more in their individuality, I suppose, and recognizing that that simplicity made it accessible to more people. Because the thing that I really hope for from the book is I've tried to write as gently as I can about sustainability. I think occasionally people get vilified in a way that's not particularly healthy if, you know, if people don't conform to a certain set of rules. But I've tried to write in an accessible and gentle way to explain why it's a good idea to use seasonal flowers, to use local flowers, to avoid chemicals. And if that message goes out to, to a large group of people, and even if only just a few of them take that bit up and say lots of people buy this as a gift for Mother's Day or for something like that, and they or they want to learn the, the stories, and not everybody's going to take up the message of the sustainability around it, but even if a proportion of them do, then it will have done some good, and I will be so happy that this book has done that. So that's that's my main goal for the book. It's taught me a lot. It's made me think, you asked me about the garden as well and how it had impacted on my floral style. And I've noticed since I started doing the book, the, the posts that I post are quite often small groups of flowers or, or much simpler things now. I also do still do the big stuff, but I'm less scared of, of doing the stuff that other people can replicate. And even if they're not going to classes or, or things like that, and in terms of my own garden, the thing that I'm trying to work out just now is what I want that garden to look like, because it has some very beautiful old roses. The couple who lived here before are left in their 80s, 
And so there are some things that are beautiful that I want to keep and some things that I have to lose and some things that need to be replanted. And so a lot of the people that I read about in your book were very clear that either it was the content that really interested them or it was the overall design. And I think I, I am interested in the overall design, but, but the content and also because the garden itself represents, I think, the love that my husband and I have for each other. We, we found each other fairly late in life. I was 43 and he was 54 when we got married and it was our first time. So I found myself planting camellias now, which were in the love section. And I found myself planting more honeysuckle than I would have. Honeysuckle is the name of our other dog. She had no, cho- <laughs> she had no choice. The, the, the honeysuckle and Hilda was, uh, was because of Hilda and the honeysuckle scanned with Hilda. But honeysuckle, when we adopted her, had no choice but to be called honeysuckle. And honeysuckle is something that's traditionally associated with love and home and the way that it grows over a house and, and brings happiness. And dahlias are thought to be romantic. And then you have the constancy of hellebores. So now each time that I do plant something in the garden, I have a structure in mind, but also each individual ingredient um, has a very special meaning. And I think as I go along, I've still got a long way to go, Jennifer. You would be surprised if you saw my garden now after the people that you've <laughs> spoken to before. Um, but I, I think I think everything that I plant now will have a special meaning to me, will have to have a special meaning and not just as a cut flower, but I'm hoping that, that the garden itself will be a, a testament to myself and to Charles. So I'm really looking forward to that bit too. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I cannot wait to see pictures of your ongoing process with the garden coming to life. And um, it already is a testament to you and Charles and Honeysuckle and Hilda and uh, its content far outweighs anything it will ever look like. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me today. It's been a real honor and a great pleasure to talk to you, Jennifer. Thank you. Claire Bowen is the woman behind Honeysuckle and Hilda, a florist who likes to write and her two little dogs. Based in Oxfordshire, England, Claire was an environmental advocate before turning to flowers as her life path. She is the author and co-creator of a new book entitled The Healing Power of Flowers, a look around the year in 80 flowers, photographed by Eva Nemeth. The book was published in the United Kingdom in March of 2021 and comes out in the U.S. this summer. Join us again next week when Cultivating Place talks with horticulturalist and devoted bug lover Jessica Walliser about the fullness of life, the art and the science in the garden, from the flowers to the herbs to the vegetables and, yes, to the bugs. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. To see many images from the healing power of flowers and the daily floral life of Claire Bowen as Honeysuckle and Hilda, check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.